so crazy to start a series on the book of Revelation. Why do we deal with such a complex book? Why do we want to, to grapple with it as a church? Why do we want to, to, to really get excited about its content, even though it's complicated, and even though we don't have an answer for each of the symbols that are used there? I've been thinking this week and praying that, um, about that, and um, I'd like to share my thoughts with you this morning. There are things that are very clearly in the first eight verses. One of the reasons why we want to, to deal and, and, and actually read and study and think about the book is because it starts that this is a revelation. This is something that is revealing some unseen things that for the real world are not there. Mark Corcoran just reminded us of Ephesians 6, that actually, as Christians, we tend to forget that there is a spiritual world out there. And what goes on, on the unseen forces, is terrible. The unseen things that are operating in the history through the years. This is the book of Revelation. You get a picture of who is in charge of history. We're going to be dealing with that more when we look at the different symbolisms and different things, uh, especially from chapter 4 to chapter 20. But also, I'd like for us to look that actually this book is quite prophetic. And there is elements of prophecy that come very clearly. And when God dealt with a prophet to deliver a prophecy, there were two elements there. That actually, it inspired faith to God. But also, it says something about who God was. In him delivering this prophecy to the me- through the messenger, God was saying that he is going to be faithful Because unless this prophecy is fulfilled, then this is going to jeopardize God's character. So it's quite prophetic. So in that sense, it's it's got this divine prediction about the future, which is great. But it's got that element of today. What does it mean? So it's a diagnosis of the present. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the recipients of the early church to be receiving this letter and saying, well, what is this then? And what does it mean for us as a 21st century church to be dealing with it, you know, diagnosing the present? I think also it's prophetic because I truly believe that this is a picture of the fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus prayed, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So there is this outstanding prophetic element of even Jesus' prayer being answered. 
Do you see? God is in control. God is full of his character. And it's, it's this prophetic element makes it very, very clear. But we're not, we should not forget that John is writing to a group of people scattered around different churches. So in the end of the day, it's a pastoral letter. And he is writing, he's penning down whatever God has put in his heart through the messenger which was given to him by Jesus Christ to which the Father has revealed. Do you see the link here? There's this fourfold delivery of this important message. And it's a pastoral letter because actually it deals with that prophetic element of action now. What is expected of the Christian? What is expected of the believer at this day when they do, when they actually encountered this um, pastoral letter? And also, it serves us as a church even after 21 centuries. It's an edifying letter as well, or a pastoral letter, because what was going on in the culture? Here we've got this group of people who've encountered the gospel. Very similar to the example of the prayers of intercession. They've encountered the gospel. And because the gospel is so countercultural, because the gospel is against what's going on in the authorities and what against on the rules and stuff, and because the Christian life is a response to the gospel, then you are you're going to have these problems. And therefore, because you've got problems and, perse- and friction, then persecution arises. So John is referring to all these times where the people of God are going to struggle. He said, you know, Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted for my sake. It's not going to be easy. And this is also what brings me constantly to say that if I was in central China, if I was a a Christian in North Korea, how would I read differently the book of Revelation in the light of what's going on in my life in comparison to living in central Bristol? But persecution was not the only problem. They got in trouble, yes, because of their faith. They got in trouble because they said things that God had done in their lives and, or they, 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 they were very visible that God is working in their lives and they couldn't hide it. But also what was going on was that there was this idea that actually on top of Christianity there's other things that we can add to this gospel. And let's make it easy, and let's compromise, and let's do these things. So there was a lot of deceitful teaching going on. And Christians being in these circles of trusting people and trusting teachers, they were being influenced by the bad 
teaching. So actually, the author, John, who's had this revelation actually from God, is addressing a group of people who are actually not only dealing with persecution from the outside, but they're having to deal with something that is happening internally within themselves with the things that they're being taught and throughout the whole book the message the pastoral letter is this letter of encouragement come on guys don't forget who you are what God has done for you and what can you do as a result of that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart to it. I think it's a letter of blessing. Yes, it's a pastoral letter of edification, but John says here, whoever reads this prophecy, while I'm reading this, I'm being blessed. And while you're hearing it, you're being blessed. And why are you taking into action what has been given to this letter? you being blessed. That's amazing. We don't see that a lot into when we read pastoral epistles. Look how Paul writes to the first Corinthians. Look how he writes other letters. And here we've got a different approach, a different pastoral approach that he's saying, actually, if you take this seriously and you read it and you take it into heart, you're going to be blessed. So, am I suggesting that have we been missing out for not dealing with the book of Revelation? in our daily readings? Have we been missing out in not dealing with the book of Revelation as a church community? I think so. Because there is that element of blessing which is not imparted by me, but it's imparted by God who is the author of this revelation. Also, it's a pastoral book or it's a pastoral letter because unlike usual um, apocalyptic literature, Jewish, which is very pessimistic. Although this is complicated and complex and full of imagery and symbols and seven of this and seven of that, which we're going to look together, there is that element of optimism. There is that element of victory where the believers... I'll, I'll read this because I'll say it wrong. It's an optimistic book where the believers are seen as conquerors. Where the believers are seen as faithful to the testimony of Jesus. It's a book of victory where you see that even salvation 
is offered to those who persecute Christians if they've come through faith and repentance. As much as it's a complex book, it's a marvelous book. Because, again, it's a reminder to the seven churches in the province of Asia. This is such a good reminder. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. What do you do when you're in trouble? What words do you need when life is hard? What are the things that you come come to your minds when you're in prison for six years because you have drank from a well that didn't belong to you? And if you've gone there in prison for the sake of your commitment and your faith in God, then God's grace and peace could be the only places that you could go and run to in order to survive. Maybe John has been there himself. But he's able to bless them with God's grace and God's peace, which we read elsewhere that surpasses all understanding. So it's a great reminder because it says not only what God gives, but it says, look, you've met Jesus Christ. You've heard of him only several years ago. He is faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, resurrected, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Peace, grace, and then he goes to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. A bigger freedom than that imprisonment. Perhaps it's very easy for me to say here, standing in front of you and not trying the six years imprisonment for drinking water. But John says it from a place of conviction. The one who has loved you and freed you not cheaply by his blood and has given you or has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and the Father to him be the glory power forever and ever Amen Look at how God is pictured in these eight verses. Who he is for John. God is the giver of the revelation. He is the words, you know, Christ is the living word. He is the one that blesses. He is the one who still has got interest for the churches and for the world. He's revealing this revelation to the seven churches in Asia. But still, in the 21st century, we can learn from that. 
He is the one who gives grace, peace, love, freedom. And verse 7. The promise of his coming. Mind-blowing. The certainty of the fulfillment of this prophecy is that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's when we say that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and He will come again. Look, He is coming. And look who God is. He's Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. So you recipients, be sure that God is the one who has the final word in history. Richard reminded us earlier on, it's very hard to, 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 to think about God's glory when you see this world in turmoil. When you see of the things that are going in this world. And yet... Revelation says, actually, look at this book. Be blessed by reading this book and taking an action, what comes there. But at the same time, be reminded who God is. And that's why I said I get goosebumps from that song about God's glory. But the other thing that we read in these verses is that Actually, the recipients needed to be assured of their identity in this God, in this Almighty God. Look what he calls them. Well, he calls them first blessed, yes. But also, there is that element of gathering. The churches that are gathered... Why would a group of people be so radical enough that in the face of persecution and turmoil and deception be gathered? What makes them come together apart from the name of Jesus? Apart from what Christ has accomplished for them? Apart from what Jesus has done for them? Apart from the promises that actually Paul writes somewhere else, are true and amen in Jesus. What does John call the recipients again? So they're blessed, they're gathered, they're loved, they're freed. Remember, God has made you a kingdom, he says, and priests to serve God the Father. Whoa! How does a kingdom work in this relationship? How does the kingdom work in the face of persecution? How does a kingdom work in the face of non-persecution? What does it mean for us to be part of his kingdom? What does it mean for us to be his priests? It's that we continue faithfully to take the message, the transforming message of gospel for ourselves, and we take it 
the world. We take it to our families. We take it to our loved ones who do not know Him. We take it to the loved ones in our neighborhoods who actually would be lost without Christ. This is a strong identity. You are partakers. You are part of the kingdom. You are part of the priestly things, which resonates very well with Paul what writes elsewhere. But in the same time, he has to give them another reminder. And that's to do that their identity, the identity of the recipients, has to be strongly linked with the fulfilling of the promises. Look, you are partakers of God's promises. He is coming and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Where where else do you want to place your identity other than the one who is, well, who was, who is, and who is to come? Well, I want to do that. I want to constantly remind myself that actually is that choice that I make that where is my identity? It's not in the car that I drive. It's not in the neighborhood that I live. It's not in the job and the accomplishments that I have. But actually, my identity is in the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Now that's quite searching. And that's quite painful because there's elements of my identity or let me say it like this, there are elements of the outworkings of my identity that I can run to that promise wholeheartedly. And there are elements that I say, I'm not so sure. And maybe I've got a few hidden elements that I don't even want to go there. Where do you stand today? Where have you placed your identity? Where is it? If we're God's people and we're his church and it's not placed on the one who was, who is and who is to come, there is time for us to do what Mark Corcoran encouraged us in the beginning. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, I have messed around. And I don't want to do anything else apart from me to say, I am who I am. Not because of what I have done, but what God has done for me. 
Isn't that the example that we inherited from the Lord Jesus? That he always did things that had to do with his father. He was not under pressure from the Pharisees. He was not under pressure from his... um, Well, so he was, but he did not give in to the pressure that he faced from the Pharisees, from his disciples, from, even from his mother. When she says, Jesus, come on, sort them out, provide the wine. He says, woman, my time has not come out yet. My time is not here yet. Because Jesus synced his actions and his outcomings of the identity. Very clearly, he had come to do the will of his Father. And lastly, Revelation is a letter of encouragement, reminder, because the outworking of the letter and the outworking of church history suggests that as a church we need to constantly remind ourselves that we need to remain faithful, faithful to him, despite persecution, despite compromise, despite deception. And for us, this dynamic is different than the one for the persecuted church. For us, this dynamic is different than from the church in Albania. What does it mean for us then? How do we check and how do we keep one another accountable that we are continuing to be faithful to Christ despite of the exterior assaults, let's say? Have we got the guts to to encourage one another? Have we got the guts to, to, to challenge one another for that? Or are we too busy? I want to stop here because... We're going to continue this thinking and I just don't want to carry on. I've prepared for much more. Um, but I just want for us to have a look at the first three chapters especially. But if you get a chance to, to get a feel of the whole book, just have a go. It's only 22 chapters. You can read it 30 minutes, 45 minutes, depends if you want to go and sit on the detail and make sense of what the seven of this meant in chapter 3 and how is that unfolded. But I just want for us to, to leave today with that encounter that God is still interested in us. And God wants for His promises to be filled in us in Westbury Park here. And I want for us to think that despite of what this, look, this coming week or coming months look like, 
the question that we're dealing with is how do we make sure that we remain faithful to the one who was, who is, and who is to come.